this is going to be just a, a rapid fire, just sort of a bit of content coming your way, just to introduce just some of the concepts and ideas that, that we'll cover in the course. Um, is it all introductory as, as, as we'd expect? So, got you warmed up with the, the Dutch question there. Um, so, what would you, if someone's going to say to you, property development, what's it about? What would your initial thoughts be? Sorry? Building? Yeah. So building this idea that something's going to change into the future, you know, actual physical bricks and mortar type changes, you know, the nature of building out something, yeah. Turning like empty, unproductive land into productive, something that can be productive. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're going to make, make something into something of higher value, I suppose, is something is one way to sort of um, capture that. So it might be um, an empty field, might be a green field, might be brown field, something that's been developed before, but obsolete now or needs to be sort of moved into a different land use potentially. Maximum property utilisation. Yeah, so these ideas of utilisation, that's a nice nice word. So making things sort of of its optimum value yeah. potentially. Yeah. Performance. I was just trying to keep the three words. <laughs> yeah. Um, any other thoughts? Improvements, yeah. I think it's that, um, I like to talk about, we all know markets go up and down, and we're talking about property here, so it's land and buildings. So improvements might uh, help increase the value or decrease the market value, those cycles. But you might actually make some physical improvements, but if the market's going ballistic, it doesn't matter what improvements you've made. It's sort of not necessarily playing into what's happening in development. So there's an interesting sort of interplay of market change and market value and improvement value. You know, what a developer would change the physical structure to add value to that structure, which sort of sits slightly on top of what the market's doing. So that's an interesting interplay there, isn't it, in terms of uh, what property experts would call improvements and, and improvements to, to, to place. You know, it's not just the field, it's the building and what you might add to that building or what you might replace that we just talked about before. So... Yeah, that's a, sort of an, an interesting sort of extension of what you're saying there in terms of improvements as a, as a technical sort of language that, that, that we'll get involved with. That's good. So um, I think it's also be aware that development is such a big term, isn't it? It's like saying sustainability. Because we could think about property development, what we're doing here, property as in land and buildings. But you could say urban development, and that would be taking more of a spatial consideration urban areas, rural development as a spatial consideration. International development, so you might look at international spaces, that would be more sort of things like UNICEF would get involved in, sort of international, sort of third world type sort of developments. But here we're sort of, we're drilling down to a little bit more property-esque sort of stuff, so it's a little bit more uh, fixed to a, a particular facility and its surrounding area, I guess. So, so it's that sort of, you know, the word development, you know, moving from one state to the next, which is, is what we're going to cover here. So this is like a word cloud. I mean, I just added some extra things here. What we haven't talked about is, is profit. Profit motive is, is largely the thing that's driving this, certainly in a, in a private development space. Uh, in a public development space, it's all about generating surplus. So your Christchurch City Councils, for instance, they're going to be trying to generate surpluses and playing with various budgets with what they've got to try and increase the value of that public stock. So adding, adding profit um, or, or surplus is something that, that we'll certainly talk about a lot in this course. So 
keep my eye on the time as we go. So what is property development? So some bits will just reiterate what we're saying just to reinforce this idea of, of transformation from one state to another. That's what I've just been starting to introduce, this idea that you might start with a greenfield site, uh, agricultural site, and it might move over time to be a big cluster of uh, commercial property, for instance. It might be a whole heap of offices or commercial uh, retail space, for instance. So that, that would, you know, conceptually, that you'd see that as a move from one state of agricultural production to commercial added value type production that's in that new space. So that's the sort of a, this idea of, of moving from one state to another, a development. So it's all about future thinking. And if you're dealing with a lot of future thinking, it, there's a lot of risk that we'll, that we'll talk about in the course, because it's all about predictive value into the future. So that's something that we sort of need to think through as part of this course is, is about risk as well. Uh, some of this sort of ties into a lot of economics. As it, we sort of intonated there about how markets change, and I was doing this, which I mean market cycles. Uh, so if we're engaging with, with, with markets and how markets change, uh, economics has a big play in, in what developers will be engaged with in the market. Um, so this will bring some thoughts into your land economics. I guess you've all done land, land economics, is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, and these are sort of um, factors of production type thinking. You need some land, some labor, capital, entrepreneurship, those sort of economic basics, uh, and, and applying that to, to space over time. And it's the time bit that, that factors into development, either in, in a hypothetical sense or in a real sense. And that's the developer's job to, to realize the hypothetical into, into the real. Um, yeah, there's a, lot, a large amount of this is built environment. We use that term building towards the start. So it's about how we shape the built environment. So as well as a drive through profit, a drive through adding value, the built environment's going to change as well. And that's got to meet certain needs, whether that's sort of private needs or whether it's in a more public capacity, uh, societal needs. So it's that developmental and sort of picture always tells a thousand words, doesn't it? So here we can think through the developmental stages of say a central business district. We'll use the terminology of CBD. A lot, so a central business district uh, with a lot of commercial office space. It might be mixed use spaces, residential and commercial. Could be hotels, could be retail, could be offices. Uh, and prior states and all the prior land uses might be uh, more agricultural. It might be areas of outstanding natural beauty. It might be um, national parks, things like that. So it's interesting to see how things may change depending on, on how things are physically. Uh, developed. Um, I suppose the easy stuff, you know, thinking small, because scale is a big part of what we'll talk about in the course. On a small scale, it might just be something as simple as just converting a garage into an extra bedroom, because extra bedroom might add value to that particular property, and that's a real sort of micro way that we can look at development. It's quite an obvious one. It might be scaled up, you know, it might be a developer who's sort of shifting from um, a block of flats and then turning them into luxury apartments and that sort of change is is a greater scale of change in terms of, to, of development. Well they all both sit within that residential land use sort of uh, area. So we'll spend some time thinking about zoning, thinking about changes of land use as well. This can't happen unless legally and, and from a planning perspective uh, there's this permission for, for uh, development to change into commercial land use. 
So there's a certain legal consideration that, that, that's sort of uh, part of this as well. So simple terms that I'm sure you've all heard of before, greenfield, brownfield, greyfield. Um, other aspects is quite um, human, I guess. Developers are uh, individual agents, so people, individual agents that work within organizations. So we'll, we'll spend a bit of time talking about agency, structures, uh, organizations, stakeholders. There's a lot of people in the development process. You know, it's, it's interesting sort of when we say, oh, what is property development? To most people, there's a, there's a sort of a, a notion that it's nasty or there's these greedy developers and there's uh, communities that are resistant to change. So there's a lot of stakeholder conversations that, that play a part. And part of that sort of human element of development is, is knowledge. And uh, we'll be introducing various speakers who are in the game, and they'll talk about, you know, well, I learned my trade on one property or, or in their sort of starter jobs, and then they use that knowledge and experience and capital to move on to their next stage, which is you know, further developments and bigger scale bigger lending, bigger financing, bigger projects, all those sorts of things. So there's a, there's a certain knowledge component that's important um, to, to property development and this sort of cycle uh, consideration. Capital, so when you see capital, think financial capital as well as assets, because people can, obviously you need uh, finance, that might be cash or it might be borrowing, there might be debt. So sometimes we'll talk about uh, debt financing, um, or equity financing. So the debt financing component is, uh, say if you borrow from a bank, it's a bit of debt that's part of that, or it might be equity, you might own some some of the, the finance. You, know, you might own a particular amount of equity in, in a property that you can use to lever more development. I think interesting sort of things we'll talk about is, well, do you use your own money in development? I think the straight answer to that is, developers often use someone else's money that's an interesting sort of part of this. It's why use your own cash when you can use others' money. Uh, so if you set yourself in, a, in the development or in the developer's shoes, that's sort of, sort of one of the, the primary sort of um, uh, modus operandi is to, is to use other people's money, use banks' money. And that's why it's quite prone to, to going bankrupt. And we'll, we'll look at some uh, resources and, and, and articles looking at that idea of uh, how it's so sensitive to financing we're going to get um, uh, the main development finance person from ASB Bank. He's going to come along and talk to you about development finance and actually give you a practical example of how that operates in reality. So there's a certain financing element to this. Uh, various components we'll touch on. Hopefully starting to sort of see some of the themes that, that we'll start to introduce already. Ideas of the site. Actually, it might be the physical nature of the site, sort of the topography of particular sites that we need to look at. Uh, how is it shaped? What's it built on? I think being located in Christchurch, Canterbury, we're never, I always joke, we're never an hour away from saying earthquakes. But certainly the, the land and the, um, the physical makeup of, of the land is really important to development in terms of the site. Uh, so we can consider sort of the physical, physicality of, of, of um, the shape and, and um, the material that the builders are working on. And that's another sort of interesting point is it's not just about building um, outwards. Development could be building upwards. You know, we hear lots of 
conversations in New York about building over bridges, things like that. And it's also subterranean as well, development that can build down. Um, Say that again, please. Building over bridges. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's where you can you can buy airspace over. And if you um, maybe not now, but if you Google um, Central New York um, building over, I can't remember the name of the, the actual bridge itself. But there's ways in which you can um, own the particular airspace. So if you've got cantilever structures, you can build over. I'm sure you're googling it right now. But there's the point being, it's, it's, it's building in not on terra firma, not on land, on airspace as well. I'll look that up after the session and I'll, I'll send the link through. Uh, and then subterranean stuff as well, it's sort of building downwards and basements. Uh, you think about um, talking about terra firma, water, a lot of conversations about flooding. The Dutch um, famously created land, building... Um, building new land out. I suppose Wellington Waterfront is a, is a New Zealand case in point where you can actually create land um, and reclaim land. Um, so it's not just building out, I suppose, is the point I'm making. So it's sort of subterranean and, and building above. So it's sort of three, 360 sort of physicality to things. And there's some things that just can't be built depending on the topography, you know, whether it's on cliffs or whether it's you know, very steep, steep sides. So the site's important, I suppose, is, is the key bit there, and it's sort of extensions on, on what we mean by the site. Capital, we talked about, knowledge and innovation, risk, uh, regulation, that sort of planning, legal considerations, stakeholders we've talked about, procurement and con contracting, not mentioned, I suppose that, that element is, you know, developers might contract out a lot of pieces in, in the process, we'll use the word process a bit, so actually buying land, getting planning permission, uh, the actual construction part of thing, the construction industry is sort of notorious for a lot of contractors in the chain. Um, so that's going to be a, a key component with which we'll, we'll talk about. Stakeholders, we've talked about. And then sort of the end of the process is, is generally that sort of marketing piece and selling on. Developers might actually be uh, just developers, but they might be investors as well. So once it's built out, they might actually... Um, uh, lease it on and get and use it as an investment vehicle to, to get some money back uh, or they might just be the development piece and then just just sell the property and we'll talk about some of those that builds into sort of the, the economic viability and the financial viability of, of property with which you know you might sell some stuff off plan if it's in a residential space to, to generate money over 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 a time frame so there's, there's interesting ways and we can look at the sort of financial models over time and how money's coming in and how money's being borrowed and and backed against against certain certain assets. <clears throat> so, I think these, these points are fairly self-explanatory. We're sort of exploring the what's, well, the why do it? Economic growth. If you're building out and adding value, there's going to be some sort of economic growth consideration. I think there's a socio-cultural aspect to this as well. is is important, um, particularly. Certain zones might be of a, uh, a conservative nature, so it might be the aesthetics of a particular historic conservation area. It might be, say, a UNESCO conservation area where certain buildings have to, to meet a certain criteria to, to fit a certain aesthetic that, that's in place. Uh, so there's a, there's a, certainly in the, in the public space, there's going to be these sort of socio-cultural needs. And then uh, there might even be a safety consideration. You know, if, if we're dealing with the re, uh, refurbishment of 
particular buildings and places, um, if you're dealing with dilapidated places, there's going to be a, a safety improvement as well through, through that uh, development process. So who is a, who is a property developer? Um, so they're going to deal with a, um, a wide range of activities. Uh, as, we, as we sort of make that conversation of going from a, a vacant green field all the way through to you know, an, an intense commercial CBD uh, type land use, there's going to be a lot of people involved in, in that process. Um, and the types of things and roles and people that might be brought in, expertise, etc., is going to be widespread, you know, whether it's an architect or whether it's a planner or whether it's a financier, all those sorts of roles. So it's quite a generalist position, I would argue, in terms of a developer. Um, things like sourcing funds, uh, thinking through what's going to be rented, what's going to be leased, etc. Um, it says there at the bottom, private or public. Can you think of any other sort of stakeholders if we're going to lump them together in that sort of big, chunky sort of... Is it public and private? Is there other ways we can think of this? I suppose where I'm going with that is this idea that you can have cooperatives as well. Uh, I would argue that New Zealand tends to sort of have quite siloed public-private. In, in a residential space, you'd have, like, say, the housing corporation, Kangora, dealing just with public housing, whereas private housing is sort of seen as quite separate. Whereas you could have cooperative models and cooperative housing in the residential space, for instance, that, that are developed en masse, and you see that around the world uh, a lot more. So, so think through in terms of cooperative. We're going to get um, Nyatahao, um the iwi developers, they're going to come in and, and give a talk as well on what they're doing. And that'll talk to a lot of that sort of cooperative, socio-economic type sort of thinking Who's in sorry? development. Nyatahu. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, iwi developer, a guy who was on this course many years ago. He was at the airport and he's, he's now working for that iwi firm of you know high-profile developers and thinking through uh, certainly sort of in the 90s and the contracts that were written in... in uh, relations between the Crown and Iwi is, is really important, isn't it? You talk about stakeholders, so that's going to be a, a good point. Uh, talking of airports, we're going to get you out to Christchurch Airport, so we're not just looking at individual residential properties. We'll sort of think on scale that I've talked about of what's important in terms of um, you, know, you think about an airport and what's involved there. It's like a, a mini CBD in itself, and the relationship between the airport, but for Christchurch as a case, and and uh, Central Christchurch is quite interesting, isn't it, in terms of the public and, and how it tries to balance growth in the city. So, so that's going to be a really interesting case as well. So from the nuts and bolts of, of how things are developed, uh, as well as the sort of the, the wider sort of master planning considerations uh, for, for a city. So yeah, private, public, cooperative. Uh, attributes, more generalist sort of conversation here. Very speculative development space. Um, Speculation, primarily thinking about profit at a certain point in time, riding the market and putting improvements on in place. A trader, you know, trade, a trade of, of services as well as um, things um, is important. That investment consideration that I talked about, um, as well as being a developer, they might want to lease the property out or get some sort of return once it's been built out, or they might just sell it and just have it as a buy and sell type development. Um, Different tenures are owner occupiers, and I suppose the, as well as speculation, it's quite entrepreneurial, uh, in a sense that um, there's going to be uh, entrepreneurs that are trying to really force and find a gap in the market. Of, of uh, maybe there needs to be some um, ultra green, sustainable properties that needs to be, um, yeah, that, that, 
that there's a there's a demand for or, or supply can create its own demand for so there's a certain pioneering spirit for, for some entrepreneurial developers it might be the tweakers people who just sort of make minor adjustments to properties or it might even be sort of more of a cookie cutter approach it's quite an american terminology and that's sort of doing if you're successful once you just replicate 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 in terms of what developers might do so this one's sort of the more generic sort of considerations this this chart is essentially just splitting down um, private and public type developers in the who category. So we've covered the, the what is it, uh, um, some of the uh, some of the whys, this is the, the who's, the stakeholders. So public and private, I suppose the interesting bits here that you might not be aware of is, um, well, firstly, it sort of guides you to think about experienced and inexperienced developers um, in terms of application. Um, in the private sector, the inexperience with that intermittent type developer in a cookie cutter sense, they might have some finance, they might have uh, just bankrolled it through their own house and refinanced and remortgaged their own house and then got some experience and then, and then building it up on, it on an intermittent basis. Um, that's very different to what the public sector, public sector will talk about risk, public sector is often lower risk and uh, borrowing of money is sort of cheaper because it's um, less risky. We'll talk about that a bit more in, in the finance component, I guess. Uh, REITs, have you all heard of REITs? R-E-I-T-S, maybe in your investment course, if you've taken that. Real estate investment trusts. So these are big sort of finance vehicles that, that operate in terms of return on a big portfolio. They're a bit like stocks and shares. That's when you see the word REIT, real estate investment trust. And SME, small, investment, uh, small, to me, small to medium enterprises. So scale's important there, finance is important, experience is important. They're the things that we're pulling out from there. Um, and that idea of public development, if we do, if we can silo it out, a lot of the time they both work together. It's not like there's a complete private sector operating separately to a public sector. They, they work together. Sometimes it's the public sector that are facilitating. Or it could be private-led, it could be public-led in terms of who owns what. You know, um, city councils might be cash poor, developers might be cash rich, and it's sort of, that means that the public sector might, might take it more as a, um, you know, using that ownership as a, as a, lev as a lever, not necessarily uh, cash. Talking of acronyms, NIMBY. Anyone know what NIMBY stands for? Yeah, not in my backyard. So development, you live in a house, you own it, you're living a nice life, then suddenly someone buys up the plot next to you, and they put in a, a planning application to put in a six-story residential block of flats. Are you going to be happy about that? I'd imagine 95% of people aren't happy about that. So it's that idea that I don't want this in my backyard. And that sort of plays, plays a big part in terms of external stakeholder engagement or internal stakeholder engagement of people who are going to be uh, affected by development. So, so that sort of plays, plays quite a big part in the development um, landscape is, is people's reactions to certain projects because they are you know, directly affecting people's lives. So developers, you know, the, the greedy developer, rubbing you know, their hands, smoking their cigars, looking to see how they can extract their next bit of cash is, you know, is, is part of the perception. Um, allied with that, you know, it's maybe something for you to think through is, you know, is are people resistant to change? You know, in, in the people consideration, are organisations resistant to change? And as human beings, we're quite conservative sometimes in, in, towards change. 
So that's something that, that, that's part of that landscape and part of the argument. It's quite, you know, the more you get into this and the sophistication of the argument, um, it gets quite uh, nuanced. And it's, this because it's such a sensitive issue, I use that block of flats example, uh, the developer's job is to try and quell and try and reverse and, and, and sort of make those sensitive issues start to dissipate a little bit. So that's sort of part, of the, part of the game as well, I guess. So any questions where we are there? Yeah, it starts to fill sort of the ideas and, the, and the, the thoughts and the concepts, the sort of the terminology that we're going to use in the course. So this second half, I'm, I'm just going to motor through it because I want to make sure I give you the, the information to, to get you started in terms of being familiar with the course. Um, so as I motor through this, it's going to be very similar stuff because it, it was a two-parter. Some of these slides I've inherited and I'm just sort of talking through my interpretation of what they are. And it was essentially two, two sets of slides glued together. So I'm just sort of making it simple for you guys. So we've talked about Greenfield, talked about Brownfield. I'm sure everyone's okay with that, yeah? Um, whether it's been developed before or, uh, or previously developed. Um, I think an interesting one is sometimes uh, Greyfield that's talked about, and that's usually, say if you have, um, Americans also use the word asphalt, so say if there was a big retail park out of town and it wasn't successful and it was flattened, and you've got all that tarmac, that's pretty much what a Greyfield is. It's sort of like brownfield sites but en masse, so that's what a greyfield site would be. What about like an earthquake damaged building? Um, so like the building's still standing, but... Yeah, that'd be a brownfield site. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, and then we can subdivide those brownfields into other categories, like what we see on the screen. It could be, for, like the example you give, could be for redevelopment. You know, it might be a, um, uh, a partial, or in the example you give, it's probably going to be a full demolition mm -hmm. and a new thing coming up. Or if it doesn't need to be demolished, just strengthened. Yeah, if it was going to be strengthened, it would fit into that refurb yeah. type category, I would, I would argue. Um, so it depends on yeah whether there's a... And this is something you'll do in your um, assignments, is assessing whether the cost of totally flattening a place and rebuild, you know, putting a new building on that land is, is the most viable and the most feasible thing to do. Mm -hmm. So the question you ask is, yeah, is it feasible? Can it be done? Can it physically be refurbished? Or does it feasibly... In reality, the league, you know, in terms of the physicality of the building, does it have to be knocked down? Yeah. But there's also the economics of that. How much does it cost to flatten it? Mm -hmm. And how much will it be in value once it's built out? And that's the sort of the, the two sides of the equation. It's, it's simple in terms of what's it going to be worth? How much is it going to be cost to, to get to that? Mm -hmm. um, and the difference is the profit, essentially, isn't it? So that's, that's going to be the sort of the... And sometimes when you're weighing all of that up, Yeah, definitely. Sort of technology, green technology. Uh, thinking about sort of passive house type sort of properties where it's all self-contained and energy efficient. All those sorts of things, all part of the mix. And you know, the technology is moving as development's moving as well. And technology is just not not in terms of materials, but the way in which we put properties. Prefab argument. You know, prefabricated um, materials that could be imported from Japan. Is that going to be more financially viable than using local materials as well? So that's all all part of that. So these are sort of ways in which we can categorize these things. It could be a, a change of land use as well. You know, it's all, talked about the physicality and the economics. It could be a, a legal planning consideration. If you can change from a, a commercial uh, land use uh, to a residential land use, that would certainly suddenly change the market. You know, there'd be a, a step change in what, what the market is, in effect. And developers can sort of 
quite quickly make a lot of money by a change of, change of land use. You know, so that's why there's a big pressure and a big call to try and open up greenfield land into uh, to be able to be built out on in terms of whether it's a residential development or commercial development. So changing land use is, is, a, is a really important part of this so conversion. That's that part for uh, the point, point towards the end. Um, yeah, you've probably heard this a million times if you're pure property people. It's all about location, but. Certainly, um, it goes back to your, I suppose, your, your land economics stuff. They need to overdo it, but it's going to all going to be about where things are located to, to how viable, economically viable, uh, particular developments are. And it will stretch into things like externalities. I'm sure you've sort of considered some of those sorts of ideas of things external to the market, light, uh, rights to light. If you're going to build that big six-story apartment, how much light is going to affects surrounding properties, those sorts of things, which is a negative externality. Um, some of it is going to be based on uh, location at different scales, geographic scales. So always be mindful in, in, this, um, in this course about is it location of the site or the situation, you know, where that actual site's been built out or the situation. Sometimes that's the neighborhood scale or the suburb scale, which has different market considerations um, to say the region. You know, so this nesting of geographies is important to development in terms of location. So don't just think about it as a pinpoint on the earth. Um, and that's what makes this interesting, I suppose, is, is everyone will say supply and demand, but it's all about inelastic supply. You know, the supply of every point on the earth is individual. So it's got its own unique market. Every place has got its own unique. But we can play around with geography in terms of scale and think about, well, in even though there's lots of points in a neighborhood, they all sit in one neighborhood, for instance. So, so geography matters to, to location. Uh, ideas around periphery and center, those sorts of concepts will probably come up. You know, I use the idea of a central business district, the CBD. You know, that is a, a central uh, concept that's very different to sort of more sub suburban, um, uh, peripheral. Um, people use fancy terms like peri-urban, those, those sorts of things. Um, ways in which we can we can classify stuff, but the nice easy bit of this is it's called neighbourhood characteristics. The characteristics of a neighbourhood can affect value. You know, if you have good schools, that's going to have some sort of impact. Particularly in Christchurch, when school zoning has such a big impact on property value because it's baked into the value, uh, because it means that you know, if you're in a certain uh, house, it, you sit within a certain school catchment, and certain school catchments are perceived to be good or bad depending on the decile of, of, of the school. So that's uh, yeah, sort of a return to land economics as, as part of the conversation. Demographics, economy, okay, no worries. Um, yeah, these are fairly straight, straightforward. It's not just the site and the situation, it's connection of spaces. So infrastructure will play a part in this. If there's roads, if there's rail, you can totally change the economics of a place. I was just use the idea of different neighbourhoods, single ones. But if you've suddenly got a light rail system, it changes the whole dynamic of, of space and geography. So that's another sort of aspect that we've not touched on yet, is this idea of, of infrastructure. Government, government policy, obviously changes in land use, that sort of land use um, um, permissions uh, are part of, the, part, of the, part of the scene. But policies, it might be tax policies, you know, certain local authorities being able to borrow more money, for instance can change the whole landscape of what's, what can be developed uh, in terms of economic viability. Um, the idea of development being a project, because it's, you can quite easily 
put it down into certain compartmental thinking, um, you know, the planning part is quite uh, concrete, isn't it, in terms of what it's either allowed or not allowed, you know. So the certain project type sort of considerations are, are clear cut is, is what, I suppose what I'm arguing here is that um, we can see developments as a project because it's nice and neat and things are done in a sequential order and, and, and that's why in which um, it's quite applied and, and um, uh, very operationalized in the way that we can look at development. Uh, and it's all about when you lock into a market. You know, if you're buying land, it can take a long time to sell land. So there's a certain lot of phasing. We'll use the word phasing, I suppose, in this course quite a bit. It might be, if it's a big massive regeneration project that you'll see in the States or in the UK, or in city centres, I suppose, um, in New Zealand, you know, it can take four, five years. The whole regeneration project could be 20 years. So sort of the phasing of projects is, is quite important to this as well. So if, if, you know, it's, people lock themselves in. That's why you, you're sort of playing the risk of if you're locked in, it's hard to, to, to come out. So, so there's a certain element of um, things being um, bounded. Uh, I think we've covered most stuff there. It's... Um, yeah. We talk about feasibility. Is it possible? Is it a way I'd sort of talk, talk about things. And then this final sort of the back end of the slides are just sort of looking at um, stakeholders. I'll pick this up on Wednesday because we've got a bit more time on Wednesday. I, don't wanna, I know I've given you a lot of, a lot of words there, I know. Um, so is, this is just underlying this idea that there's a lot of people involved in development. It's not just the developer. And there's sort of nice conceptual frameworks for this for this particular one. If you have a look at the slides after after the session before Wednesday, it's basically a balancing out of power, predictability, and interest. And when you see the word interest, it's not financial interest. It's having an interest, a legal interest in a project, and that will change the dynamic of what happens. Yeah, it might be the public interest or it might be the private developer's interest or the bank's interest, for instance. So think about interest in those terminology. That's one way we can think about the facility, the building, internal stakeholders, external stakeholders. And this is another nice, I'm not going to go into the depth of this table, I would sort of study it before Wednesday. And use um, this sort of stakeholders blank section is where you can insert the different types of stakeholders, you know, whether it's... Um, an architect or a project manager or a, or a planner, for instance, how they sit within this um, engagement. Because it's such a, a, a personable industry in terms of people, agents, uh, and organizations, different stakeholders can be engaged to a strong degree or a lesser degree, and that, and that enables how successful different projects are. So I'd, I'd encourage you to look at that, that engagement plan. 